kids, you are dismissed to Icon Kids downstairs. Our scripture today is from Matthew 22, verses 18 through 21, and verses 36 through 40. Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, Why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. They brought him a denarius, whose image and inscription is this, he asked them. Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, Give then to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Teacher, which command is the law in the law is the greatest? He said to them, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for reminding us who we are. Thank you for calling us into a new relationship and redefining who we are. God, I pray that we can live into that. I pray that we can believe that. God, there are so many ways that we can look at ourselves, so many titles we can confer upon ourselves. God, I pray that we would see ourselves the way you do, that we would uh, say the same things you say, that we would feel the things that you feel. God, I pray that you would give us a heart that desperately wants you and you alone. God, will you cast down any of our idols so that we remember not only who we are, but whose we are. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been going through this series on idols, and you know, I was talking to somebody this week, and we were kind of going back and forth on why does the Bible seem to have so much to say about idols? Why are we warned so often to avoid idolatry? And we've said this before, whenever we go through the text, so often the scriptures are kind of showing us what our main kind of habits are. Like we actually have the habit of constantly looking for something else to worship. We've talked before about how we're designed for worship. We're created for worship. So we actually look for things to worship. We will always have this penchant for looking for something that might even be good and then begin to worship it. And most of the time, we don't like being told that there's something that we hold to with a closed fist. We don't like being told that that in and of itself might be idolatry. So we convince ourselves that what we're doing must be godly, must be good, must be something that is pleasing to God. And so when someone begins to say, well, no, that right there is something that's actually idolatry now. How are you prone to respond? What's your first kind of knee-jerk reaction? It's typically, no, let me explain to you why all these things are necessary. All these things are good. We just sang this song, I am who you say I am. What do those words mean? Like, we just sang them. So, what, what things were going through your head when you were singing those words, I am who you say I am? I mean, it begs the question, do we really believe that? Do you really believe that you are who God says you are? And I ask that because there are a lot of titles that we hold, right? There's a lot of ways to describe ourselves, and none of them would be inaccurate. All of us here are either sons or daughters, Some are brothers and sisters. Some are mothers and fathers. Some are husbands and wives. Some are employees. Some are employers. We have ethnic identifiers uh, that, that specify ourselves, our countries of origin, and our citizenship status. And God doesn't call us to ignore any of those identifiers, right? Your sister, your mother, your father, your friend, you're an employer. All those things are still true. But the question, the question is, I mean, honestly, the question is, what takes precedence? What are you more of than anything else? What takes top priority? A better better question is, to whom do you really belong? That's the question. We had this uh, sermon a few weeks ago where we talked about how idolatry oftentimes can look like this. When my who I am values take precedence over the whose I am values, I'm guilty of being an idolater. So, So the question then is, whose are you really? And, and there's some things that they can bear that out uh, for us. And here's why I'm asking this. Because if I'm a child of God, like we just saying, if I'm a child of God, then I'm a citizen of God's kingdom. And if I'm a citizen of God's kingdom, then the question is, where does my real allegiance lie? If, if, if I'm really living out of whose I am, and I'm truly believing that I am a child of God, which means I'm a citizen of God's kingdom, then any allegiance that lies in contrast to our first allegiance as kingdom citizens 
is idolatry. And Jesus really is, is pointing that out. So, so we, have to, we have to ask this question, and this is going to be a hard topic. It's going to be a little difficult probably for some of us because this topic is one that is heavily debated even now. And that is the topic of patriotism and even a little bit more nationalism. So what role does patriotism, if at all, how does that coincide with this idea of being a citizen of God's kingdom? In other words, does God require patriotism even as a, as a Christian? And see, that, that can be really hard depending on how you define patriotism. What you may not realize is that all of us, if you've been born in this country or even other countries, things have already been kind of programmed into how we should think about love for country, be they good or bad things. So what do you think about when, it, when you think through, okay, I'm a kingdom of God citizen, but I'm also a citizen of the United States of America, or I'm a citizen of some other country. How do those things coincide? Do they just naturally coincide? Are there conflicts? If they are, are you aware of them? Is there a way that you can exalt one above the other and which one actually gets exalted? It's a big question. How do we think about, in some ways, our dual citizenship? What does it mean to be a citizen of an earthly kingdom while still being a citizen of, of the, the kingdom of God? And you see, the varying degrees to which patriotism and or nationalism can be rooted, they can be rooted in our very expressions of idolatry, very sinful idolatry. So, what does it mean? Well, Webster uh, defines patriotism this way. The quality of being patriotic, devotion to, and vigorous support for one's country. So being devoted to or vigorously supportive of a country. Again, in and of itself, not necessarily bad, not always necessarily good. How are we prone to show patriotism in this country? There's Plenty of ways. Being patriotic can take on several connotations, right? Displaying a flag outside the house, totally fine. When the national anthem is sung, we stand or we're told to stand or you're encouraged to put your hand over your heart. When I was in the military, that was something when you're in uniform, you have to do by, by I mean, this is something as a part of your job, as a part of the rank and all that. You actually have to give what they call proper customs and courtesies. And so if you're in the military, if, you're in all, in, in, if you are in uniform and the national anthem starts playing, if you're not standing at attention and if you're in uniform, you're not saluting the direction from which the music is playing, or if there's a flag present facing the flag and saluting, you actually can be written up. You can actually have real punishment coming your way. Those who are veterans here know proper customs and courtesies. So, so we all, on different level, whether you're military, whether you've been raised in school doing the Pledge of Allegiance, these are all things that we know, hey, this is what it means to be a citizen. This is what it means to be, on some level, patriotic. Maybe it might mean wearing objects of patriotic affection, flag pins, flags on t-shirts, swimwear in the design of flags, reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, standing, putting your hand over your heart. These are ways that multiple countries show affection, not just America. So these aren't foreign. These aren't, everybody here should be able to at least wrestle with what it means then to be a Christian and to be whatever we define as being patriotic. Again, being devoted to and vigorously supportive of one's country. Now this definition of patriotism, again, is not necessarily bad. It's not uh, one that should cast aspersions automatically. Again, being thankful for one's country, being thankful for the laws that are in place that are safe, things, ways in which people can be cared for, ways in which you can exp uh, expand what you consider to be good, and having good ideals, those things are, are excellent. There's nothing wrong with that. Those are good things. The question is, are those ultimate things? Because if they're ultimate things, then you will exalt those ultimate things over even certain things that God requires. And you may even be conflating the two and thinking you're doing both at the same time. Why, why do we say that? Well, what did we say about idols last week? Well, we said, first of all, you have to define what it is that you love. Because the question of idolatry is a question of disordered loves. Whatever you love, you will pursue, you will protect, you will prioritize. 
Anything or any person you love, you will pursue, you will protect, and you will prioritize. So whatever is the object of your love is something you're likely going to do those three Ps with. And so you've got to ask yourself another question. If I'm pursuing and I'm protecting and I'm prioritizing, the next question is at whose or what expense? Because if you prioritize something here, something has to be bumped down. Everything can't be top priority at the same time. Specifically when you're talking about allegiance. That's why Jesus said you can't serve two masters. Something has to take precedence. So how do we then engage this understanding or this idea of patriotism this way? If I'm going to pursue what I love and I'm going to protect what I love and I'm going to prioritize, then anything I pursue, anything I, pr I protect, anything I prioritize above and beyond God and his kingdom is idolatry. Even the good things, if I pursue them at the expense of God's kingdom, I am an idolater. So, if we are children of God, and we're just saying we are children of God, if that's true, then, then we're citizens of his kingdom first. So how do we live under the rule of earthly kingdoms without confusing the two? And I think many times we will, we will look at patriotism um, and the ways that we look at patriotism in some ways is, is are ways in which God would actually call them idolatry. And I think Jesus gives us a really good picture of that in the text that was just read. So this is the question I want you to be thinking through. What does, how does patriotism look like idolatry? What, what, does, what would that mean? Maybe you're thinking, okay, I know I'm not guilty of that. But I can think of some examples of, of people who are, their patriotism is idolatrous. For some people, they don't think it's possible that patriotism could ever be idolatrous, right? Because God and country are one for a lot of people. So this is, this is where we're going to go. When you look at uh, this verse that we're reading, this passage of scripture we're reading, this is what we're thinking through. We're thinking through, in what, if God hates idolatry, he hates idols, he crushes them, then what should we make of our own idolatrous allegiance possibly to the ways in which we think of nation, the way we think of king, the way we think of country? Let's go back again through Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 22, starting at verse 18. And remember the, the context here, right? These Pharisees are plotting to trap Jesus. They've been planning for a while. They don't like the influence that he has. The, the, the way that he's speaking with certain authority that's making people question the other authorities in the community, in the Roman, this Roman-occupied area of Jerusalem. And so they're hearing this. They're, people are watching Jesus do miracles, watching him speak on issues of the kingdom of God with great authority, and they're being really threatened. So they're trying to put him in a bit of a conundrum. They're wanting, because they know that they're in Rome, they're wanting to see where his allegiance lies. They're wanting to see how he deals with, and I'm going to show you in a minute, how they're really challenging his view of patriotism here. Look again, verse 18, perceiving their malicious intent. This is, well, even before in verse 17, they say, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus says, why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? And he asked them, Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they left, when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Now, here's why this verse was chosen today. And here's why I really want us to dig in hard. This is a verse that's often used by many folks, a lot of Christian leaders, to, to, to basically make the point that God is pro-government. And we're not saying he's anti, but that is the text that we'll run to. God is pro-government. or We'll talk about it next week. Or Romans 13, uh, obey those that have rule over you. God is pro-government. And typically, God is pro-whatever party within government that's their particular kind of view, right? That's the one, Whatever, whichever one they prefer, that's proving God is this. And we got to be really careful with that because you got to ask the question, is that really what Jesus is saying? Is this Jesus kind of giving us uh, the healthy, good, godly view of government? And is this him kind of giving a rubber stamp to whatever government uh, 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 form of leadership is in place, no matter what country you're in? Is that, is that where he's going? I don't think so. 
And I think that when you start getting into the historical context here, you might be really surprised at what Jesus is actually doing because he's actually warning against that way of thinking. Jesus is actually warning them against using God to rubber stamp your country, your government, whatever way you view, uh, the ways in which you view people being governed, be careful not to rubber stamp that with God's approval. Be careful not to do that because you can easily turn that into an idol. And even though you think you're using that to worship God, you're worshiping that thing. You're no longer worshiping God. And he's gonna, he, he really kind of paints this picture, but the only way we can get it is if we remember the audience here. Who's the audience here? Well, you've got uh, Israel. Israel is occupied by Rome. Rome, the Roman Empire is controlling all of the known world in that. So, so all of a sudden, these folks, that we, we've said this before, you've got almost this, this kangaroo government in place that the Romans just allow to appease the Jews that are there. They don't really have their own sense of a real nation. They don't really have a sense of a real identity because they're not really recognized that way. But the Romans allow them to still do things almost ceremonially. They have no real representation, no real ways of, of advocating for themselves. And they are under the rule of Rome. They are under the rule of Caesar. So you got Jesus talking to these Jews in, in this Roman-occupied area. Now, here's what you have to know. In Rome, Caesar and God were interchangeable. Caesar was treated like God to the people. Whoever Caesar was, was the God, basically God among them. They treated and worshiped him as God. As a matter of fact, Jesus here is saying that in order to separate the idea of king and country, give to Caesar what's rightfully his, but give to God what is rightfully God. Now, do you realize how subversive that statement is? See, he's talking to a group of people who are told Caesar and God interchangeably, this is who we worship. And now he's saying, actually, you give the little that's due to Caesar, but Caesar isn't God. Caesar isn't in control of all things, not even most things. God is actually the one that's sovereign. God is the one that actually should be worshiped. So he's basically saying the taxes, sure, that goes to Caesar, but there's a separation. There's a higher power beyond Caesar that you have to acknowledge and give your ultimate allegiance to. This is an incredibly subversive statement. This is something that would have caused great, the reason why these folks are having great consternation is because ultimately he's saying something that can get him killed and ultimately does. He's saying something like, hey, even though the leadership here is saying that this is how we're supposed to acknowledge leaders, if you're a, Ro if you're a Roman, this is what patriotism should look like, hey, I'm going to give you a new narrative. This Caesar is not your king. This Caesar is not your God, nor is Rome. When you look at what Jesus is ultimately saying, he's saying anything that belongs to God Think about this. Anything that belongs to God, if you give that to Caesar, you're an idolater. In other words, you don't give leadership or government the same type of reverence or fealty that you would to God. If you do that, you're an idolater. That, that, that's, a, that's a very hard thing because, because ultimately if you're like, well, uh, if... If the leaders say this one thing, uh, I'm supposed to just have unquestioning loyalty to that thing because that's what it means to, to give uh, honor to the leaders that are there, right? Well, that, that, that's going to depend on a lot. But you have to ask yourself the question, um, who's king first? Where is my allegiance first? Because if I answer that wrongly, I'm going to be an idolater. And this is where we go deeper. Because anytime you have any unquestioning love, unquestioning devotion, unquestioning allegiance given to anyone or anything other than God is idolatry. And if you don't, remit, if you don't believe me, consider this. The way that the ancient Romans practiced their patriotism looks very different than the way we do. This is why we miss, we, we'll miss this if we just read the text without understanding history, without understanding context. If you understand the way the Romans practiced their patriotism, it looked very different. Here, the way that we practice our patriotism, uh, we, we do it very differently. There's much more demonstration. They, they didn't have uh, an actual anthem. They didn't have some, uh, an anthem as an ode to the empire. 
They didn't have a national flag. So you might not see them as patriotic because their controversies were very different from ours. If you look at our country's recent controversies related to national pride, related to patriotism, related to racial justice, they've centered lately around songs and symbols. Because that's, where our, that's one of the ways that we demonstrate our patriotism is through songs and symbols. To the point that we will elevate the song and the symbol to the place of the sacred. How do we know that? Because if someone elects not to uphold the song or symbol, what is our vitriolic response? That's what an idolater looks like. Wait a minute, you should, you know, even if you think that it's good to do and you're looking at a person over here that's not doing it, why does it make you so? Because you've exalted this idea of patriotism to the level of the sacred. You're even more mad if they do that than if you know that they're in some form of unrepentant sin that's harmful. Even more mad if there's something they're doing that's harmful to other citizens but I'm more mad because they're not exalting the symbol or the song to the level of the holy. See, the Romans didn't have that, so you'll miss that. It's easy to miss that because they didn't, there wasn't, they didn't have this issue of are you standing or are you sitting for the, for the national anthem? Are you putting your hand over your heart? That wasn't something that was there, so you can easily miss it. Here for us, the star-spangled banners, stars, the stripes, the songs, they've long been seen as sacred. So if the flag is not honored as sacred and supreme, we respond with anger. We respond with vitriolic language. We respond with invectives that we levy against each other. But understand this. While the Romans never stitched their patriotism on cloth, on uh, any, any type of embroidery on a, a flag, while they didn't embed their, their ideas of patriotism into, into music in the same way. They were fiercely patriotic. But see, their rituals were embedded in the fabric of everyday life. You see, in the, in the Roman world, the, the, the way that they would actually function, specifically around the beginning of, of Jesus' time, around the time of his birth, Caesar Augustus had decreed that every meal, both public and private, must include a drink poured out in his honor. Matter of fact, there, there's certain things that we do now when you're like remembering somebody that's fallen, when you remember somebody that we lost. It's easy, somebody's drinking wine, beer, or whatever, and they just pour one out for the homie, right? <laughs> that was something... That was something that was very common amongst the Romans because that was something that was dictated by Caesar. What Caesar would do is he would say, when Augustus Caesar said, hey, listen, from now on at every meal, I don't care what meal it is, at every meal, when you get ready to drink your wine, you pour a little bit out in my honor. This libation was something that was done to honor the father of their country. It ensured that the lordship of Caesar would feature prominently in every Roman's imagination. You see, there was the idea that I need to be reminded of who the real king is. I need to be reminded of who actually is the real Lord of Rome. So every time we have a meal, we pour a drink out for who the Lord of Rome is. So you realize Roman dinners were not just family affairs. They weren't just a time to get together and talk about the day. They were those things, but they were more. They were key components of organizing your political, your economic, your social relationships within the community. Dinner would shape Roman citizens' sense of themselves, and it would reinforce their allegiance to Caesar. So instead of singing in front of flags, the Romans would gather around a table, sit and drink and eat in honor of the emperor. That's what their patriotism looked like. That's what it meant to be a good Roman citizen. So with this as the backdrop, you should notice this new peculiar group of this sect of Judaism that's starting to follow this man named Jesus and is causing a lot of problems and question marks for people who live in Rome, this group sometimes called Galileans, sometimes called Little Christs, they began to organize their lives around shared meals, and they called their dinners the Lord's Supper. That wasn't just a coincidence. That wasn't just, hey, we're all here, let's just eat. This was, we know what the Romans expect us to do. And much like their Roman neighbors, these early Christian leaders, or these early Christians, they would come, they would eat, and they would shape their lives together. But instead of pouring out a drink in Caesar's honor, they shared a common cup in the honor of a man executed as a common criminal. 
What are they saying when they do that? They're not, they're not pouring anything out towards Caesar. They're sharing in this common cup to remember who really is sovereign. In other words, they're doing this subversive meal, this, dare I say, protest against something that is looked at as the most patriotic thing you should be doing as a Roman. And they're saying, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is. You see, sometimes when you're trying to figure out whether or not your patriotism is idolatrous, you have to ask yourself this question. Am I willing to lay us out patriotism in the name of worship? If, if I cannot, in the name of actually worshiping God as a kingdom citizen, if I can't set aside whatever I view to be patriotic in the name of worshiping God, well, I'm probably, a, a, I'm probably an idolater. And patriotism is a part of my own God. You see, these folks, they didn't profess their willingness to kill for the empire. Instead, they showed a readiness to die for their friends and their neighbors. And that's why this connects with what Jesus says a little bit later. If you look down to verses 36 through 40, think about how Jesus, this is why it's so interesting. I've never put these two together and they're just a few verses apart, but we separate them so often, right? They're going to Jesus and they're trying to trick him and they're trying to say, hey, which one are you, you going to magnify Caesar? Are you going to magnify God? You're going to make one group mad and we're going to have you either way. And then he responds. And if you think about the way that he couches his argument, verse 36, he says, when, they, when somebody asked him, teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said, said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. What's not there? Love your country. This is not a call to hate your country, and this is not a call to not care or have any sense of pride or joy in being a, an American or any other country. But here's the thing. There is no biblical mandate for you to love your country. There is no biblical mandate for you to love your country. There is a mandate to pray for leaders, and there's a mandate to respect the laws. There is no mandate. And here's why that's important. Because what did we say last week? You cannot, you're never called to love anything inanimate. You're never called to love anything that actually is not a sentient being. You're called, according to the great commandment, the greatest commandment, you're called to love God and love neighbor. That's what you're called to do. Now, why is that important? Because there are ways in which we can practice our patriotism that preclude us from loving God and neighbor. Which one's your God now? Which one is most important to you now? This is the question you have to keep asking. In any country that you're in, hey, what does it mean for me to have respect and love, and I don't even know if I like that word related to a country, but respect and love or reverence or what have you, and I care about this in this way, and I have undying loyalty here, what does that look like? And next week when we talk a little bit about what this looks like outside of these borders and how that actually affects other believers elsewhere, we'll talk about that. But how does that actually affect believers here? You see, any devotion to country should always be in subjection to devotion to God and our neighbor. That doesn't, doesn't mean you don't have devotion. It just, is it the rightly ordered devotion? This was the case for these early Christians. These early Christians, there's this very well-known patriotic practice that we just elucidated, and you see very clearly this is what should have, would have been expected of them. And, and for them, they transformed and, dare I say, protested a patriotic ritual by reenacting Jesus' meal shared with his disciples at Passover before his death. Then they demonstrated this new loyalty rooted in this mutual love, mutual devotion as what? As children of their God, as citizens of this new kingdom. That's what they put on display. Hey, we're living here. We got to respect these, but we will respect the laws and respect the king of this country, respect the leader of this country to the degree that it enables us to keep the great commandment. Anytime we have a choice between the great commandment and the great country, the commandment always wins out. That's what they started practicing. The first allegiance was not to Rome, and it was rooted in something that went beyond race ethnicity, language, or gender. And here's, here's how we know that it was something that was abnormal. Here's how we know that it was something that actually really, really caused a lot of issues and a lot of consternation for the Roman leaders. Because as a result, many of these Christians, 
would go on to be charged with sedition and rebellion. Many of them were charged with, they were charged in Roman courts. You can look these up. There's so many cases. You can actually look up the cases of several of these Christians who would be taken to court and call these seditionists. And they would willingly plead guilty. Willingly plead guilty. They were charged in these Roman courts and they were uh, convicted. And this is, again, the question, how do you know when your patriotism is idolatry? When you're willing to abandon your patriotism in favor of true worship. For them, holding on to who truly God was, that was an extension of their worship. You realize that what you say and who you advocate for or who you're silent in advocating or who you refuse to advocate for is an extension of your worship or the lack thereof. It really is. You can see a lot. You can say a lot about who, who people's gods are. You, I can say a lot about who your God is based on who you love and who you choose not to. And this is something that you see Jesus putting on display. You see the Christians putting on display. Worship says, I love my God and my neighbor more than I love my country or my government. Sometimes being a faithful Christian meant being a bad Roman. And sometimes being a faithful Christian means I might end up being not the most patriotic American, depending on how you define it. Sometimes being a faithful follower of Jesus, that will make you very unpopular. And it did for the Christians. Over the years, these acts of Christian subversion, they continue. They would be at the dinner table, and it became a real threat to the Roman Empire. You'll find these dinners being recorded by the earliest church historians as what they called agape feasts or love feasts. And they would write about them very negatively. They, many of your Roman leaders, they were threatened by these agape feasts, these, these love feasts. Because they, at these feasts, these Christians were known for showing their hospitality to strangers. Even when their government was very, very clear about them not doing so. As a matter of fact, their government had things in place to avoid the stranger, to ignore the stranger, to dehumanize the stranger, to vilify the stranger. And they, in subversive fashion, said, no, we're going to use this time of worship to be a time of service because this is what it means to be a kingdom citizen. So if that's what you call being patriotic, I'm casting that aside because the kingdom of God is my first citizenship. And they caused so many problems that actually one emperor, one of the Roman emperors, Julian, complained about it. Here's the quote that, that we have from Emperor Julian during this time. He said, these impious Galileans not only feed their own poor, but ours also. Why would that be a bad thing? <laughs> Welcoming them into their agape. Why would that be a bad thing? They attract them as children are attracted with cakes. <laughs> with cakes. While the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity and by a display of false compassion have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. See their love feasts and their tables spread for the indigent. Such practice is common among them and causes a contempt for our gods. The early church prioritized separating God and country in order to avoid creating a false God and a false gospel. It's very dangerous when we take what we think is the right, good, godly patriotism and what we don't realize is we are remaking God into another image and that is who we're worshiping. And you know the reason why we struggle the most is because if you've, if you've grown up in this, you're going to struggle with this because this is part and parcel of your identity. This is part and parcel of what's been comfortable for you. This is part and parcel of what it's been, been to be a part of a family and to be a part of certain churches that highlight certain things in ways that the early church would never have done. And I, and I say that because we, the early church, they separated that on purpose, but we far too often absorb kind of patriotism into our religious rituals and our religious expressions. And we do it, not saying every time we do it is bad, what I'm saying is every time we do it is dangerous. Every time we do it, if we do it, we have to keep checking, let me make sure that this isn't actually idolatry happening in my heart right now. 
on any level, am I exalting whatever I view to be my country or government or what have you or some sense of history? Am I exalting that up on the same level as the gospel? Am I exalting it on the same level as the kingdom of God? It's not uncommon to see certain churches that celebrate Fourth of July, decorate the sanctuary with American flags, sing patriotic songs during worship, but the early church would have seen this as alarming and depending on what country you're in, quite possibly blasphemous. Now, this isn't to say that any church that does that is wrong. This is to say this church won't be doing that. And it has nothing to do, I'm a veteran of the United States Air Force. This has nothing to do with not wanting to care about your country and not being thankful for the country that you live in and not being proud of, of the ways that you've been able to serve other fellow servicemen and women together. This has nothing to do with that. Many times that becomes weaponized. You should feel this way because you are a veteran and you care about the country. Absolutely. I'm a veteran. That's yet another title, but I'm still a child of God. And the kingdom of God will always take precedence over this kingdom and any others. Because you know what I know? I know that God has been on the throne for way longer than America's been here. And I know that God has been on the throne a lot longer than any other powerful nation. We're reading about Rome. Guess what? The best they can give you is the Vatican now. There's no power. There's no influence in that sense anymore. So, so I don't have to start thinking along the lines of, well, I got to think about America only or America first. No, seek ye first the kingdom. Seek ye first God's kingdom. Seek ye first what God wants. That is actually what's first. So I don't have any conflict. This isn't a matter of, and, and to say, this is why I think it's so important to say then that to not take this kind of a view must be in some way unpatriotic, therefore ungodly, proves to me the ways that you've conflated patriotism with kingdom mindset. We historically have been gullible to this kind of nationalistic Christianity. Any idea that our love and devotion to country will engender our best selves may sound good, but it's patently false and idolatrous. Now, I'm going to point out something, and I'm going to say this is true of numerous events throughout history, and it's true of numerous leaders in our country on either political side of the spectrum. But I'm going to go back to the most recent inauguration that we've had, and I'm going to use words that are used in this inauguration that are not unlike other words that have been used by others. So please don't come sending me emails going, I noticed you didn't tell me about Eisenhower. I know, please don't go back that far. Every president has talked this way. This is the most recent, so let the recency effect set in. This, these are some of the words that are used that I think we are so gullible to because of the false ways that we conflate Christianity with what it means to be a citizen and what it means to be a patriot. 2017 inauguration, these are some of the words that were a part of this speech. At the bedrock of our politics will be a total allegiance to the United States of America, and through our loyalty to our country, we will rediscover our loyalty to each other. Later, when you open your heart to patriotism, there is no room for prejudice. The Bible tells us how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Is that true? Do we become our better selves when we embrace an idea of patriotism? Do we, actually, are we, do we actually engender brotherhood and sisterhood? Do we actually start loving each other more? Do we become less prideful? Do we become uh, less hateful? Do we become less deceitful towards each other when we're patriotic? Show me how in any place in Scripture, by embracing country, you start embracing each other. That's how idolatry looks. That's not how God's kingdom works. Which is why... If you think that, then it's easy to overlook other folks. It's easy to not see other folks. It's easy because you're like, listen, if you just, your, your problem is you just need to be more patriotic. If you love the country more, then the country would love you more. In the name of Jesus, we must reject any call of total allegiance to any kingdom. Your country is not your creator. Your country is not your savior. Your country is not your God. There's no call, as we said, to love country in Scripture. There's a call to love God and neighbor well. So, to the degree 
that you can steward your citizenship in ways that advocate and love your neighbor well, you are functioning like a kingdom citizen. But if your patriotism elevates your earthly citizenship above your kingdom citizenship, then your faith is an idolatrous one, and it is susceptible to hypocrisy and to sin. And here's what that looks like. Let's get real. Here's what it looks like when you've elevated patriotism above the kingdom. And when I say the kingdom, simply meaning this, what does it mean for me to celebrate the good things about who God is, to celebrate the ways in which the kingdom is on display here? And what does it look like for me to mourn and decry all the ways that the kingdom is not here? That's what it means to be a kingdom citizen. I love what he loves. I hate what he hates. I celebrate the things that that show the kingdom's here, and I mourn the things that show that the kingdom has not yet arrived fully. That's what it means. Worship and lament, praise and lament. What does this look like? Well, here's what happens when idolatry is at play. I will publicly criticize those who kneel during the anthem, but I'm conspicuously silent when leaders mock POWs. I claim to worship a man who was tortured to death on the cross, but I have no reservations about government torturing people made in God's image in the name of national security. I glorify the proud history of a country while overlooking its horrific crimes. What does that look like? Remember the Alamo. Remember the Civil War. Remember Pearl Harbor. Remember 9-11. Get over slavery. Sing God Bless America while drowning out the cries of countless lives, many of whom are Christians, being impacted by government policies that are crushing them. This is what idolatry looks like. This is what it means to actually not have the heart of God. This is what it means to have the heart of a good, maybe American, but not a follower of Jesus. This is idolatry, plain and simple, and it grieves God's heart. Why? Jesus said, here is the most important commandment. This is what you have to test everything through. These are the goggles through which you view, however you view the world. I don't care how many Thanksgiving meals you've had with grandma and grandpa and they've passed down the ways you should love your, whatever that is, you have to run that through. You have to run that through this syllabus. How does this tie into this great commandment to love the Lord my God with my heart, soul, strength, and mind and my neighbor as myself? That's what I'm called to do. Because I would love to believe that if we've, if we've done a good job of extricating patriotism from our Christianity, that, God forbid, America's not here anymore and the church is still here. Because guess what? The church is still here. The church is still here. Somehow Christians found a way to not have their faith married to patriotism in such a way that they've been able to actually still be here when a lot of these nations are gone. Mark 12 restates this this way. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. What does it look like then to root out that type of idolatrous patriotism? Are we even willing to do that or are we married to it? Is that a close-fisted thing for you? Or is it open-handed enough? And my prayer is that, and we need this, I need this for myself. Lord, I need the Holy Spirit to open my hand so that this thing that I've been clenching so hard, I can let go of. And listen, you're not just letting go of it just for you. By letting go of that, you're actually freed to love others the way that you love yourself. You're actually, we don't realize that we're kind of enslaving ourselves when we redefine what it means to be a Christian by these types of definitions. So patriotism, in and of itself, it isn't bad. But it's entirely dependent on which empire we serve. Our prayer should be, Lord, help us steward our citizenship well, and may we faithfully embrace those moments when being a faithful follower of Jesus means we might be deemed unpatriotic for his glory and not for the king and not for this country. When you think through, uh, if somebody ever asks, Or if you are prone to ask, I've had people ask, well, hey, you're patriotic, aren't you? I don't even know how to answer that all the time. I don't know exactly what that means. Because ultimately, if you're asking me that, there's a definition you're operating off of, and I don't know what that is. See, in one sense, I could say yes if we're talking about 
the same thing. But I have to respond and ask you the question, well, that depends on which empire you're talking about. Which kingdom are you talking about? Because if you're talking about God's kingdom, amen, we are all, we should be proud and have nothing but unwavering fealty and allegiance to this kingdom. And then any other kingdom in which I live, that's what I operate from. But I need to know, which empire are you talking about? Because if our patriotism takes higher precedent than our citizenship in God's kingdom, then we need desperate, desperate rescue. We need desperate repentance. We need desperate redemption. And we find that only in Jesus. We find it only in what he modeled for us, what he accomplished for us, and we get to live out of that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray that you would root out all areas of idolatry in our lives. Not even just here, but God, as a, as a nation, as a country, we struggle so often based on just our own history, the ways in which we have married in unholy matrimony, even political uh, positions, political platforms, governmental platforms with what it means to be a Christian. And God, I, I pray that you would uh, root that out. I pray that you would redeem that for us so that we can fully uh, be good stewards of our citizenship, that we can fully be good stewards of what it means to be citizens of this country. God, we, we can, I pray that you would show us we can totally be thankful for your sovereign hand and whatever it is that we're able to experience as citizens of this country. And yet, Lord, I pray that even in our thankfulness, even in our devotion, that we would not be divorced from mourning all the ways that your kingdom's still not here. God, I pray that you would convict us in ways that we would see desperate need for our hearts to still break and our idols to be crushed. God, I pray that we would actually see no kingdom higher than yours. And I pray that we would be willing to set aside any other kingdom in the name of yours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. As we come to this table, this, this picture of this subversive meal, this is what we are actually saying that we believe when we come and do this. When we come and do this, when we come and partake of this meal, we're not just doing this as individuals. We are individuals. And we think through all the ways that we are desperately in need of being changed over and over and over again. Every, every single time when we look at areas of sin in our lives, it's because of some form of idolatry. There is something that we are trusting in other than God, which is why we're willing to engage or believe or trust in something sinful rather than something that's true. And so every time we come, we're, com we're coming saying, God, I realize and I acknowledge and I'm broken over all the ways that my heart still is not fully formed and all the ways that I'm still not fully remade in your image. And you're doing that right now and I'm trusting in that right now and all the ways that I don't look like you, I'm broken and I come to you with a heart of repentance and I come to you with a heart of expectancy knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive me, to redeem me and to remake me. And so in this place, this is where we can go and we spend time, Lord, even in this, if I can look through, if you can show me areas in my own life where I still have trusted in my own citizenship, I've trusted in my own sense of patriotism as something that adds some sense of goodness or godliness. I may not have used the words, but I function in that way. Maybe I can look at the ways that, that I am, I, I immediately get upset and I kind of buck up against when I see other people not practicing the same patriotic uh, rituals and patriotic disciplines that I have. And maybe I've been really judgmental in that sense. God, I need you to, to root that out in me as well. Lord, I pray and we pray and I hope coming here makes us pray that we would be people that say, God, I realize that outside of your grace, outside of your mercy, outside of you living, dying and resurrecting, there is no other hope, not patriotism, not government, not citizenship. There's no other hope that I have. But you see, if I'm trusting even a little bit in patriotism or anything else, I'm actually canceling out what Jesus did in my own mind and heart. I think that I'm adding something. There's something else extra that makes me a little bit more holy or a little bit better or a little bit more godly. And this is where we come to repent. This is a time that uh, we repent and it's contemplative and it's somber. 
but it's also a time of rejoicing. It's also a time that we say, Lord, I'm, I'm thankful that I can come to you honestly confessing where my heart is broken and where my heart is ridden with idolatry. And I can come with this assurance of pardon that you promise not to leave me or forsake me and you promise to finish what you started. You promise to come and make all things new. If this is where your hope is, if this is where your trust is, if this is where your joy is, then this is your table. If this isn't you, if this is, or maybe even you just realize, maybe God is pricking something in your own heart now, and you're realizing areas in your own life where, man, maybe not this or maybe this, or other areas where there's just real idolatry that I'm just not ready to let go of. Then let this time pass. Let this time pass so that you, Jesus can really do work with you where you are. He doesn't want you to come and put a mask on. He doesn't want you to come and perform. He doesn't want you to come and act. He wants to meet you where you are, and he wants to do that work before you ever come. So if that's something that isn't true, or maybe you just don't believe this at all, then let this time pass. Paul tells us to examine ourselves, ensure that this is something that we're doing worthily. And by worthily, he doesn't mean the people who deserve it. He's ultimately saying the people who acknowledge, based on what I know is true of my own heart, I desperately need this because nothing else will rescue me. As our volunteers come, we want to remind you that we do communion here by the process of intinction. And so when you come down the middle aisle, starting in the back, you come and take a piece of gluten-free bread and you'll dip it in wine or juice as you see fit. On that faithful night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks for this Passover meal, redefining this meal for the rest of time. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. And in the same manner, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is my blood. The blood poured out for remission of sins. The blood of a new covenant. Take and drink of it. And do this in remembrance of me. Listen to those words. Don't do this in remembrance of your country. Don't do this in remembrance of your king. Don't do this in remembrance of Caesar. Do this in remembrance of me. What Paul tells us is that every time we do this now, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. You see just how subversive this had to be in the Roman Empire. That every time we do this, we're proclaiming where our great Lord and Savior is. And it's not in Caesar. It's not in country. It's not in king. So as we come, this is the time that we come where we're reminded that our true Lord and Savior, our true king, has come to rescue us has come to remake us, has come to root out the things that are idolatrous. This is where our hope is. And we proclaim this until he returns to finish what he started. So if this is where you struggle, but this is what you believe and this is what you're clinging to, this is what you're hoping in, then come be convinced, be reminded, come and taste and see that our Lord, our Savior, the only God is indeed good. Let's eat together.